You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's happening? Come on in, have a seat. It's just you and me today. Listening to the sounds of Leigh Avenue. I am back here in Los Angeles. After a 10-day vacation, off uh, resetting, connecting with family, uh, it was fun, man. It was a good trip. We ended up uh, back in Boston. I don't know if you guys were following me on Instagram, at Mike Petchy on Instagram. I was posting the copious amounts of food and uh, food adventures that we were going on. I haven't jumped on the scale, but I guarantee you I probably put on 12 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I'm the biggest boy that I've been yet. Um, so yeah, it was fun. Me and Gina went back and uh, hung out in our old stomping grounds. We were at uh, in Boston and Watertown for a little bit. You know what's crazy about going back home is that um, it's so fucking expensive. It really is expensive to fly across the country right now. It's ridiculously expensive. And then to go back to Boston, Boston for some fucking reason was so ridiculously expensive uh, as far as like uh, hotels are concerned, as far as staying there was concerned. Um, there was a huge difference in food costs though. My God, Los Angeles's food costs are out of control. Uh, but um, it was worth it. It was great. We were, uh, Gene and I were talking about it and we were talking about the way that uh, this lifestyle is for us. Like what? Uh, hold on a second. Was that? Is, is there someone at the door, Gina? Uh, no, I thought I heard Oh, my bad. Um, so yeah, we were talking about uh, this life and this lifestyle and how it requires so much from us to be successful in this business. Um, and oftentimes, when we uh, get work and we start working in this business, we get lost in it. We have to. It requires us to spend hours and hours and hours of our day just sort of sinking deep into uh, a project, into finishing a project, into getting a project, into writing pitches, into putting things together. Um, And the next thing you know, just time travels, right? A year goes by, two years go by, and you ask yourself, like, when's the last time I took some time off? When's the last time I had a vacation? And then you, uh, you you have to deal with the fact that you haven't hung out with your family in a long time. Like it had been over a year since we had seen my parents. It had been a long time since Gina had seen her family. And so uh, I forget who, where I heard this quote from. So I'm going to uh, misquote someone that I can't remember where I heard it from, <laughs> which is terrible. But uh, someone said that what we need to do with our job is we have all these glasses that we have to keep full or try to keep full. And you have a glass for your career you have a glass for your relationships, you have a glass for your family. And oftentimes you fill a, you fill that one of those glasses up pretty full, right? You spend some time on your job, you spend some time on your career and that glass feels very full, but that water comes out of one of those other glasses. Um, And Gene and I spend a lot of time making sure that we're connected. So there's always a half a glass to go somewhere else, you know? And, um, We had to spend a good two weeks just to refill that family glass, to refill um, the connection with where we we came from. 
Um, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun to do that. It was fun to sort of disconnect. I was pretty much off the internet, uh, except for uh, when we went viral again, 12KM went viral again in, in uh, India. And so um, I jumped on there to make sure that I was stoking that fire a little bit. But I tried to limit myself just to an hour or two. And most of the time, it was before anybody else was up. And I was just sort of dealing with it in the morning. Um, and then I just really disconnected, completely disconnected from everything. And it was, man, it was nice. It's nice. And, you know, we work as freelancers, so you get worried, right? There's this part of you that's like, if, I, if I'm not prepping for work, if I'm not doing things, then, you know, how long is it going to be before I find another job? And so oftentimes it's hard for us to sort of step off that ledge into a vacation or into uh, you know, the task of refilling one of those other glasses, right? Um, but what happens as a byproduct is that that humming, like for me, it's like it's almost like bees in a can when I'm like firing on all cylinders and in my head, I'm just sort of lost in my to-do list or caught up in sort of a spiral of like how to get specific things done. And when you let that sort of fade down for a little bit, there's a sense of clarity that happens afterwards, you know, and as you're uh, you know, finishing up, as we were finishing up our vacation, um, I found myself just going like, okay, what are my next steps and what am I going to do next? And to trying to sort of um, redefine or re put a new pin, if you will, in the Zelda map. <laughs> and I only know this because Gina's had me playing her Zelda game for her while we were flying on the on flights and stuff. So yes, I was playing the new Zelda game like a total nerd. Um, but, uh, it's been interesting, uh, coming out of our family vacation and coming out of the back end of it. And, you know, our timing was weird because we came home at, right at a weekend, right? And a holiday weekend. I forgot that it was Memorial Day weekend. Today's Memorial Day. I'm recording this today. So Monday, um, so then, you know, it is even more delayed, right? Cause you can't just go right back to work cause no one's fucking working right now. Um, and so, like anything, right, like coming off of a film or coming off of a project or even coming off of a vacation, there is sort of like that going from like the severe rush of dopamine and seeing everybody to a crash again. And so there's this sort of crash that happens afterwards and you go into like a subtle depression. Um, and uh, I've been I've been working my way through that and going, all right, look, look we're going to redefine the the new tasks here. Um, and so I'm focusing on a couple of new things. I don't want to talk about them specifically yet because I haven't nailed them down, but I have some ideas on how to uh, get uh, this podcast recharged again, get this podcast up and running a big time again. And there's a, there's a bunch of things that I, I really want to talk about, but I can't talk about yet. So uh, thank you everybody for tuning in. Thank you for being longtime fans of the show. Thank you for buying the t-shirts. We still have some t-shirts available. If you guys want a t-shirt, I still have a few left. I have the 12 cam podcast shirts. I also have a few of the storyboard t-shirts. If you want a t-shirt, write to me on Instagram and say, hey, Mike, what's the deal with the t-shirts? All right. I'm going to give away a free t-shirt to a fan of the show. So if you want a free t-shirt, um, write a post underneath my t-shirt post that I will put up today on Instagram and tell me, I want a free t-shirt. Why do you want a free t-shirt? What do you do for the show? Are you a super fan? Write that stuff up there and uh, I will pick a winner by the end of the week 
and I will send out a free t-shirt next week. Uh, the end of this week is going to be pretty insane. Uh, Crude is coming back into town. Uh, we're going to be doing the Cinegear thing this week. So we will be at Cinegear. We will be uh, at the Creative Solutions party. Um, we will be floating around. There's a couple of other parties. Um, uh, Cinematography Salon. Their party's happening. By the way, I'm super proud of my buddy David Cruda. He put, he started the Cinematography Salon. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it is a. It started as a Facebook user group for uh, young cinematographers, people that weren't at the height yet in their career of being at the ASC or being in the union. And really, it's a pivotal point for a lot of people that try to get into this business as cinematographers because you're you're trying to navigate um, how to. Uh, create a contract with your clients, how to set up a job, how to find crew. Um, and really what happens at that early stage is you're oftentimes abused by the system. And I think because there, in the past, there hasn't been a place for cinematographers to communicate with each other, to go for help. What that does is it kind of puts you in a situation. And I've met a lot of young cinematographers or now uh, middle-aged cinematographers that have sort of shaped their career based upon the trauma that comes from the early days of their career. Like, uh, I'm never, am I going to do that again? I got fucked on this or, uh, you know, I'm not going to work with these crew people again. That was a terrible thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, it always seems like when you finally convince somebody when you're younger to get a gig, you are forced to be thankful with it. And here's everything you have. I don't want any questions, just deal with it. And <clears throat> I think the benefit of having a group like the Cinematography Salon, is that you can then go to your peers and people that may be just a bit ahead of you who have had a little bit more experience than you have. You can go to them and say like, is this right? This is what they're offering me. Does that make sense to you? And they said that this is the way it works. Does that work that way? Um, and it's also been a great resource for folks to find crew, uh, exchange crew people, <clears throat> exchange contacts as far as gear is concerned, give opinions, on you know what equipment you should use for this or that, which I feel like is too nerdy. But I think th the thing that I really love about what they've set up is it has become a community and an incredibly strong community at this point. Um, and uh, they just started their own podcast. So uh, they're putting that together. Uh, two hosts, I think there's a host in New York and there's a host here in Los Angeles. So they're gonna be doing uh, interviews on both coasts, which is great. Hold on, I can drink some water. And it's something that you should check out. I'm going to talk to Kruda when he's here. I'm going to try to get the guys on the show. Um, and uh, maybe we'll do some uh, crossover episodes. But very proud of those guys. Um, so if you're looking for a, if you're a cinematographer, and there's a lot of young cinematographers that are on the show, yes, Cinematography Salon has a new podcast. I think they're on episode three this week, potentially. I, I think they're releasing every week. I'm not sure. But uh I'll talk to Kruda. He's coming to town. My buddy Greg Tango is coming to town. Um, Greg had worked. I met him for the first time on 12KM. He was on our shoot. I think he was a key grip on our shoot. Um, he's been in a uh, gaffer on a bunch of my pieces. Um, and uh, he is also an accomplished uh, shooter and a director of photography now. He does a lot of tabletop stuff. So he's very exciting. 
I got to get him on. I should do a team up a podcast with him and Cruda this week. That'll be fun. You guys into that? Um, so yeah, the end of the week, how did I get off on this tangent? The end of the week is going to be pretty busy. So we'll run that contest. I will, I will call a winner next week. Um, and I'll send you out a t-shirt on my dime. I will send it out to you guys. I'll pay shipping and all that. Um, so if you want a t-shirt, um, then just under the post for t-shirts, I'll do a contest post today. Uh, tell me, uh, why it is you think you deserve a t-shirt? Uh, are you a super fan of the show? What have you done for the show? Uh, have you suggested the show to your friends? Um, what, what, why, why you, that's the big question. Why? <laughs> so, uh, it's just me today. And I wanted to jump on and do uh, a show that uh, really sort of celebrates uh, fantastic artistry, that celebrates the craft of filmmaking. And I, you know, it's the show's called In Love with the Process. And oftentimes on the show, we gripe. There's a lot of griping that happens on the show. And I want to make sure that I'm also sharing with you the genuine love that I have for this medium, for this craft, and uh, for stuff that I see. And um, I watched uh, this stuff that I'm going to talk about on today's show a couple of days ago, and I watched this scene in particular, and it destroyed me. Like, it's such a good moment. It's such a great scene. Um, And I wanted to sort of break down why it destroyed me, why I felt... uh, as strongly about the characters and Jesus Christ, man, like I almost broke down when I watched this scene and, and I watched the scene a few times and every time I watch it, I almost break down. And so I want to sort of tackle why, why this show has crammed its little fucking uh, oyster shucking knife in my shell and uh, got to the soft spot. And the show that I'm talking about, you've heard me rant and rave about it before on, on our podcast, um, I've had the cinematographer, not the cinematographer, I've had the production designer of the show on uh, our podcast. Um, and I think, honestly, I can honestly say with all the television that I've watched, with all the television that I do watch, I think this is the best show on television, i.e. streaming service. And I think it's that way because of its love and attention to uh, it's screenplay writing, the way dialogue is delivered. Um, I think it's it's love for uh, choreography and cinematography and the way that those two work together. I think it's because of its love of production design, its love of building environmental sets. It never cheaps. It never gets cheap about um, how many locations it does in a scene. It goes to a new location when it calls for a new location. It just, when you watch this series from front to end, it feels like the longest, uh, most intense film. It feels like Scorsese uh, had the ability to do, what is it, how many seasons? Five seasons of this show at the same production level that he would do Goodfellas, that he would do, um, you know, The Aviator. It just feels that way. And uh, I'm talking about, of course, The Marvelous Miss Maisel. Have you guys seen it? Have you watched the show? Um, It is on Amazon Prime. 
They're not sponsoring me. I'm just telling you where it is. And um, you should, right now, I'm just going to let you all know, as we continue, we're going to tackle some spoilers here. And we're going to tackle some end of the season, end of the show spoilers here. Now, what I suggest you do, if you haven't seen the show, it's okay. The scene that I'm talking about in particular, you could take it out of context. Like, it's not going to give anything away if you go watch this scene right now. And you should. Okay, so let me see if I can pull this thing up and get it in the right place. Hold on. Oh, cool. There's someone outside using a power tool this morning. <laughs> All right. So if you go onto Amazon right now, it is episode eight, season five, episode eight, right? Pull it up, pull the clip up, and then just fast forward that clip to about 35 minutes in. Okay, and what you're going to watch is a scene, a very simple scene, very simplistic scene uh, with the amazing actor Tony Shalhoub. Um, he was on the show Monk, right? Wasn't he on Monk? Um, he has been one of those actors that has everything that you've ever seen him in, whatever movie you've ever seen him in. He's always played supporting characters. And when you watch him, he steals the show. And then when he got the lead for Monk, that was massive. Everybody loved that show. But he's one of these hardworking actors. And he sits down in the scene and he works with other hardworking actors. And this scene is so simplistic. It's about six minutes long and it destroys me. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. If you haven't watched the show and you don't want to do this, stop the episode. Go to another episode. I've got a bunch of other episodes that you guys can listen to. But if you want to just study, if you want to go through the process of studying what makes this scene so special, you should watch this right now. I'm going to play the clip. You guys are going to hear the audio. Um, but uh, you should definitely go watch this. All right? So like I said, spoiler alert. Now, I think I have this thing queued up in the right place. Let's make sure we got everything going here. We do this live. And uh, just sit back and listen to this scene. Thank you. Arthur, you're going to have some wine, aren't you? Of course I'm going to. You pour it out. Okay. Hey. You know Arthur? This is Henry. Pleasure. Henry. We've been debating what to drink for 10 minutes now. You're debating. I'm drinking. Doesn't count if you brought it from home. Ha ha. I didn't. I figured as much. Can you recommend a red wine without using the words tannic or fruit forward? Henry, don't torture the young man. Abe, are you in for some red? I think I'll skip. I have a lot of work to do tomorrow. Abe, the Village Voice does not encourage employees sobriety. In fact, it thrives on its employees' crapulence. Now drink, damn it, or you are fired. An underused word, crapulence, for a reason. There's a hostile mood at this table tonight. Wine is good. Wine is fine. We'll have this Bordeaux here, the 56 Chateau Margaux. Very good, sir. That's an acidic wine, a bit angular for some. Are you trying to kill me? Bring the wine and I will muzzle Henry. Stop it, Henry. What? Really, I'll have you removed. I sold my place in the Hamptons. The Montauk spread when? Last year, I was tired of the upkeep. 
And the property values out there, they're not going up anytime soon. Wherever, there's nothing out there. Exactly. Hey, did you see Princess Margaret on Gordon Ford? She was hysterical. You're kidding. Queen Victoria was supposedly a hoot. I never knew that. I saw that movie, it was delightful. The absent-minded professor? With a flying car, that movie? At Radio City, I'm a huge Fred McMurray fan. Tell me you're with the grandchild. It seems like Pablum, but Fred McMurray elevates it. I don't even think Fred McMurray's family is that into Fred McMurray. I ignore them now. Birthdays, no point. Have you forgotten the little boy in you, Henry? Gifts are the point. I can't remember the last time I got a gift I liked. <laughs> so, hey, before you got here, I was raving about your conversational skills to Arthur and Henry. Oh, God, I'm sorry I've been such a drip. Was it because Gabe said crapulence? Yes, that was upsetting. No. I'm... Abe? It's just the whole goddamn world, you know. Only that? I'm getting maudlin. What about the world, Abe? I've just turned 64, and at a time when I should be comfortable, settled in body and mind, I'm not at all. I suddenly find myself at a crossroads and everything feels upside down. That's because everything is changing at such an ungodly pace, Abe. Especially for men our age. Men our age. We were born in the 1800s, a different century before phones, before radio. My parents' house had no electricity till I was seven. One can't keep up. Yes? And it's physiological, as much as it is psychological. Homo sapiens crawled along, playing the same roles for tens and tens of thousands of years, and now suddenly we're forced to adapt to this rapid-fire change, more change in a year than our predecessors experienced in a lifetime, in a millennium. Think about it. Change to our predecessors were sudden exogenous events. Earthquakes, floods, uh, an eclipse, a saber-toothed tiger lunging at you. Out of nowhere, they were things to be dealt with in the moment. Then things naturally reverted back to the norm. But now, change happens over you. Change itself is the flood. Change itself is the saber-toothed. Change itself is the norm. My fear, though, is that the world is as it always was, and I just didn't see it. That a lot of us didn't see it, us men. I had a feeling we'd get gender-specific. I'm serious. We can't blame exogenous events. It's too easy. Our collective blindness has caused a lot of harm. We control so much, meddle so much. And to what end? That's one man's perception. Exactly. And perception is tricky. We all interpret through the lens of ourselves, man and woman. That's natural. That we must have shared with the hunter-gatherers. Menus, gentlemen. The fish tonight is a Dover sole prepared one of two ways. Traditional Meunier or a citrus Blanc sauce. Thank you. I've had the Dover sole before. It's terrific. You know, I had a moment the other day. I, I, I live in this big old apartment on Amsterdam. Bought it decades ago. Everyone thought I was crazy, all that money. Now I look like a genius. <laughs> and my wife and I, she's, she's passed. We, we spent countless hours outfitting and decorating that we took such pride, everything in the right place. And one day, not that long ago, I stood in the living room and looked around and all I saw was stuff. Just stuff. It was the strangest feeling, as if I'd never seen any of it before. And so much of it was tied to the memory of my wife. We were together 40 years, but it didn't matter. 
All I could picture was my children picking through it all, choosing what to keep, what to sell, what to throw in a trash heap. My life. My wife. In piles. It was a warm day, but I suddenly felt very cold. Look, I believe in free will. We are not robots. We can change for the better. We do adapt. And sometimes what others perceive as meddling, Abe, is actually teaching. You were a teacher most of your life. We pass along our knowledge. That's natural. My son, bright boy, warned me again and again that I was smothering him. I thought I was guiding him. Then he moved out. He stopped calling. He stopped. We teach, yes. But we foist. I certainly do. I think I emerged from my mother's womb giving advice on how to deal with the umbilical cord. I'm having one of your moments, Arthur. I'm seeing the piles of my life. And they're foreign to me. This is about your family, right? You tried to help. You tried to guide. Mistakes were made. Everybody makes mistakes. I don't like this wine. Everything I thought about the roles of men and women I think is completely wrong. I have done exactly the wrong thing for both my children. No, Abe, it's not true. You know, my daughter owns the apartment I'm living in. I thought you bought it, didn't you say that? My wife came up with that, our cover story. Now, my daughter bought it. My daughter, my daughter was dumped by her husband out of nowhere. That was her saber tooth. Instead of collapsing from the weight, she emerged stronger. A new person, so I thought. But now, I think, perhaps that was who she was all along. I never really took her seriously. My son, Noah, I took seriously. I would take him to Columbia with me every week so he could dream of what he could be. I don't remember if I ever did that for Miriam. I don't think it ever occurred to me. And as unfathomable as this career choice of hers is, she's doing it on her own, with no help from me or her mother. Where did this come from? This strength, this fearlessness that, that I never had, that my poor son never had. What could she have been if I had helped her and not ignored her, ignored who she really is? My daughter is a remarkable person, and I don't think I've ever said that to her. We should probably order. Excuse me. I think we're ready. How is your chicken prepared? It is lightly seasoned, sage-rubbed, and stuffed with the finest foie gras from the Dordogne Valley. He had to ask. It's been wow. Wow. Jesus Christ, that, that even still affects me. And I think this is the fifth time I've seen <clears throat> that I've seen this scene. What do, you, what do you think? Did you watch it? I mean, even just listening to it. It's so incredibly dynamic. When you watched it, um, what did, what was the first thing that stuck, stood out to you, right? 
Um, did it occur? Did it register how long this scene is to you? This scene's like over six minutes long. It's enthralling, right? And it's so simply, exquisitely just shot and, and blocked and crafted. Now, yes, the script, this, this script for this uh, monologue, essentially, is amazing. And the natural, the path, the way that they have crafted this scene to bring you down to the most emotional, the, the, the heaviest impact for this character. And this is this character sort of understanding, understanding what he has done wrong through the whole season. And every moment in the season when he was giving his daughter shit or, or didn't uh, pay attention to what she was going through, Every minute of this thing, he starts to understand, and they do such a really good job of bringing this character to this moment. This is him sitting here in the aftermath of everything that has happened in this season and looking back on it and saying, I was wrong. I was completely wrong. Um, just that character arc and that, that final delivery for this character and then who he becomes after the scene, because this isn't the final episode of the whole series. There's one more episode after that. Everything that he becomes after this character, he changes here in this moment, and he changes for good. And he he really becomes somebody different. It's it's the perfect, the perfect character arc for a long series like this, and it's just so masterfully done. Let me read you um, this little uh, blurb here that I was reading on entertainment. Uh, weekly, their website. Uh, the show's creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, wanted to write this speech for Abe, uh, who's played by T Tony Shalhoub, uh, to give a fitting grace note to his character's journey as the show reaches its conclusion. With an ensemble like this, we knew we weren't going to be able to give everybody their moment in the last episode, she explained, so we were carefully picking and choosing. We wanted to complete this journey. Uh, we started with a man who was very, very comfortable in his life and his thinking completely thrown off his axis by his daughter's journey and his daughter's independence, she continued. I wanted to see that man feel some regret for years that he missed when he just did not understand his daughter and really see her for what she was. Indeed, the speech with his reflection on Midge, who was the main character of the show, uh, Midge's extraordinary achievements and Abe's own sense that he failed to recognize it could be the thesis statement of the marvelous Miss Maisel. It definitely was that, says uh, Palladino. The world couldn't see it, and they insisted that they'd be seen. Um, it's uh, pretty, pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And she did uh, such a great job making sure that this character came to flourish. And so if that's what you watch shows for and you want to see characters, uh, you know, land, if you want to make feel like it's worth it as you go through this journey with a character, the show's perfect for that. That's not why I love this scene. Okay. And so what I'm going to do, let me turn this down so I don't fuck it up here for you guys. I'm going to rewind this thing a little bit. And I'm going to watch it through and talk about it. So hold on. Let me pull this back. And I'm going to talk about what I love about this sequence. And uh, 
Once it queues up here, let's see, 10 seconds in, stand by. There's nothing better than listening to your host fast forward to footage, is it not? Okay, so I'm going to put this on lightly in the background so you guys have a sense of where I'm at. Let's see if we can do this live. Okay. So as we cut into this scene, I love the atmosphere, right? So right off the bat, what I love about this show is um, the production design. It's stunning. The location is stunning. The wardrobe is beautiful. The, um, the contrast, the cinematography, amazing. The sound design, amazing. I feel like I'm stepping into a basement restaurant in, uh, you know, East Village in that time period. It's so good. And um, the way that Tony Shalhoub has built this character the way he holds his hands, the way he passes off his coat, passes off his hat, I feel like I'm right there with him. Uh, it's so well done. And no one, none of the departments is sticking out more than the other. No one's showing off here. Like, it's just perfectly here. Okay, so let me play it. He walks in, and he reveals the stage. Now, we've seen this before. He comes in, shakes hands. It's very much lit like a Richardson scene, like a Rob Richardson scene. So this could be any of Tarantino. This could be Inglorious Bastards. This could be um, Goodfellas. This could be Scorsese. The simplicity of the single light source bouncing down off of the white tablecloth, underlighting everybody. It's perfect. It's beautiful. You feel like you're here in the moment. There's a fire in the fireplace. I love it. I love the contrast between the white light, the key light that's bouncing off the tables, and all this warm, beautiful sort of tungsten light that's everywhere else in this sequence. Love it. Now we're being introduced to a table full of supporting actors and really good supporting actors. Let me see. I had it pulled up here. Let me make sure I get everybody right. So he meets, Abe meets up with his pals. Gabe, played by Chris uh, Edgman, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Author, played by Kenneth Tiger. It's T-I-G-A-R, it's T-G-A-R, Tiger. I've never said his name, but I, I love that guy. And Henry, played by Patrick Breen for dinner. So each one of these actors, you've seen these actors before. You've seen them in stuff. And specifically, the guy I think that steals the fucking scene is Kenneth. Kenneth Tiger. And you see him, he's an older gentleman, and you're like, where do I know this guy? Where have I seen him before? Well, let's go to their, the, his IMDb, okay? So he's in his 80s. This guy's been in the business forever. And as I click on this, and it says that he's known for specific stuff, okay. So you youngins that are listening to the show, he played a small character, a German old man in The Avengers. Very small character, probably in the sidelines. Um, but the other ones that it says that he's known for, Lethal Weapon 3, Conspiracy Theory, that means that he was in a lot of Richard Donner stuff. Oh, he was the bomb squad guy in Lethal Weapon 3. I love that guy. I love that guy. I never really think about that. All right, so let's take a look at what he's got going on for credits here. All right? So... <laughs> This actor has 177 credits. 
177 credits, and he's a hardworking actor. Hardworking. Marvelous Miss Maisel. Let's see the recent stuff. He was on that Hunter's show. Uh, he was in Pinball, The Man Who Saves the Game. He was in Billions. Uh, let's, there's so many credits here. I'm just scrolling through. He was on The Blacklist. He was on House of Cards, The Post. That movie's fantastic. Uh, Feed the Beast. Let's see. Nurse Jackie. This guy's been working hard. This is, a, this is an actor that just shows up and does the work. Does the fucking work. And he, you've seen him. He was on The X-Files. Dr. Plant on The X-Files. I'm just scrolling through these as we're talking here. Conspiracy Theory he was in. That was the one with uh, Julia Roberts and Mel Gibson. A Richard Donner movie. Oh my God, this guy was in Jade. Remember Jade? That movie was terrible. Um, the Commish. L.A. Law. That's right. He was on L.A. Law, that old TV series. So many of you are young. You're like, oh my God. That's because I'm back in the 90s here on the list, guys. Lethal Weapon 3. Big part for him in that. He was on Baywatch. Alf, the TV series. Good Lord. Dynasty. Phantasm 2. Uh, he was on Star Trek The Next Generation. Mr. Belvedere. Oh man, I'm going back. He was on Magnum P.I. Cheers. Holy shit. Still going back. Knight Rider. Where did he start? Still going back. WKRP in Cincinnati. Yes. These are old shows. Like, this is stuff that I barely remember that my parents were watching. This guy, he started in 1970. 1970. And out of all of these moments, out of all these pieces, He's always that character that shows up and he's strong and he's there to support the lead. He's there to support the story. So many actors out there that become character actors. And this is the epitome of character acting for me. And I've talked about this on other episodes. I talked about this on the episodes with my friend Pavel. I've talked about this with um, uh, Peter Stormare. He's another great character actor. Um, I think that when... So many young folks that want to get into this business want to be leads. They want to be, you know, Tom Cruise. They want to be the person uh, carrying a film. And more often than not, those roles don't go to the people that have the acting talent. Those people, those roles go to people that have the looks. Those people that, those roles go to people that have the value, this term value in quotes that. Uh, producers put on actors and, and, you know, us directors are always going like, well, what, what is the judgment for their value? Is it because they've done amazing movies like this guy has done? This guy's fantastic. If I got this guy in my movie to be any character in my movie, I would be in awe of it, right? Because of everything that he's done. I mean, he's literally been working longer than I've been alive. You know what I mean? So like, why wouldn't this guy have value? No, value is placed on very strange things, like um, whether or not a younger youth knows the character's name or the actor's name, right? Maybe he was on uh, one of the uh, late night shows and uh, he did a segment where they had to eat bugs and that went viral on YouTube. And now this guy's got value. This woman has value, right? Maybe it's because they spent so much time building a social media account, Right? Maybe 
they, you know, they're known for unboxing things and they've got millions of views and suddenly they got repped by one of the agencies and they're like, you should also act. Boom. And so then they become these leads, right? Maybe uh, Beyonce heard them singing somewhere and they are great singers. Now they're the little mermaid. You know, you just, you don't know what gives you value, right? It could come from anywhere. And honestly, dude, the way I look at it is, is whether or not fucking millions of people know who this person is because the, the the actor that's leading a piece essentially is the face going on a poster it's essentially the marketing campaign and so whoever's making that film of course wants to make a return the easiest way possible so the first thing that most places are doing right now is they're doing um material that is uh an intellectual property that everybody knows whether it's a comic book material whether it's based on a book Maybe it was a bestseller. Maybe it was based on a magazine article that everybody knows that everybody watches. That's what they go for because it's an instant, simplistic marketing ploy to get their money back. Same thing happens with leads. So an actor like this, an actor like this gentleman who has been at it for so long, Kenneth crushes this scene. Kenneth makes this scene for me. Um, and let me continue through uh, and uh, I'll tell you why. So, this is Henry. Henry. We've been debating what to drink for 10 minutes now. You're debating. I'm drinking. Doesn't count if you brought it from home. Ha ha. I did. That's Kenneth there. Can you recommend a red wine without using the words tannic or fruit forward? Henry, don't torture the young man. Abe, you in for some red? I think I'll skip. I have a lot of work to do tomorrow. Abe, the village voice does not encourage employees sobriety. In fact, it thrives on its employees' crapulence. Now drink. I think the, one of the things that really sort of strikes and hits me hard personally when I watch this is this is what I love to do. I love, this is what this show is. This, honestly, this whole scene is what my show is. And <laughs> honestly, this whole scene is what my show would most likely be if I was doing this show in my 60s and I was with all my buddies in my 60s. It would be this, the the banter between men, the banter sitting down at this table, the banter of friends introducing somebody else into a situation like Everybody has their years and years worth of opinion on food and wine, and they know each other, and they give each other shit. I, I love this. Like, you've got me. This is, you want to talk about relatability, this is like custom built for me. So as I'm watching this, at this moment, in this scene, I'm imagining that I'm sitting at the table to the point where I'm wishing that I'm sitting at the table with these gentlemen. Um, it, they, it just feels like... And they may be a little, a, a little too elevated as far as conversations concerned. The, the each of these characters, they're playing very much like um, distinguished gentlemen in quotes, like you know, very academic. Um, but I feel like I could, I, I could hang with these guys and really enjoy the conversation. Damn it, or you are fired. An underused word, crapulence. For a reason. There's a hostile mood at this table tonight. <laughs> Wine is good. Wine is fine. We'll have this Bordeaux here, the 56 Chateau Margaux. Very good, sir. That's an acidic wine, a bit angular for some. Are you trying to kill me? Bring the wine and I will muzzle Henry. Stop it, Henry. Why? Great dialogue. Great dialogue. I love the way they deliver the dialogue, the overlapping of the dialogue. Um, and uh, the, the the whole scene has sort of like this Robert Altman vibe to me, you know, for those young people, go IMDb, Robert Altman. I mean, he was very much known for uh, miking all the actors in the scene and really mixing all these different sounds together. Um, I love that stuff. Okay, so, so far, 
we've met Tony, right? So if this is the first time you're watching this, this is why I told you, you can watch this, this scene out of context and it works. He walks in, you get the environment, you get the vibe, you get the tone, you know where you are. Um, I don't know if you know if it's period or not. It's interesting. It should feel period, but there's nothing specific here that points out that it's period, which is cool. Maybe some of the outfits. Um, but uh, we've done a good job. We've met the characters. Here we are. We've set the stage. And just the way that Tony is sort of, he took that deep breath before he sat down at the table, right? So that's sort of foreshadowing. Something's wrong. Is he stressed out? Like, what's going to happen in this scene? Pretty cool. So he sits down at the table. Wine is fine. Something's going on. Really, I'll have you removed. I sold my place in the Hamptons. The Montauk's brother? Now there's this Last move. Year, I was tired of the, upkeep. the camera the moving around the table. The this is a move that we've forever. seen um, in so many films. You know, made famous by Reservoir Dogs. The rotation around the table. But then it stops on Tony. And you go into this close-up profile um, with Kenneth out of focus behind him. And as I play this, they start to adjust the audio. It seems like Pablo, but Fred McMurray. As the camera slowly moves on Tony, the audio starts to feel like it's underwater. So, right now, this is a master. These are masters of the craft. Okay, so they know that sort of doing this move around the table immerses you in the conversation. The conversation um, is uh, swirling around our main character. And when I first saw that move, my first notion being a cinema nerd, I was just like, oh, cool, they're going to do the rotate around the table move, right? But then they stop on him. And then they do this bit where they push in. And then they do that profile where he's in focus and he's out of focus. And they do all this work. This is stuff you see in good movies. This is stuff you see in a Spielberg movie. This is stuff you see in a Scorsese movie. This is not stuff you see on TV most of the time because it takes time to do this stuff. It takes time to craft this stuff. It takes time and money to do it. And so most of the time you don't get this. You, If this was some random fucking show somewhere, they'd have like two or three cameras around the table, maybe handheld, maybe... uh they're on sticks, and they're just getting coverage of this conversation. That would make this six minutes fucking drag, okay? So what they've done here, which I really like, is they've used the waiter as uh, the motivation to break moments in this long scene. So the waiter shows up and resets everything. He comes over and asks about the wine. He comes over and pulls Tony Shalhoub out of this moment with a sound cue, which is the clinking sound of the wine bottle hitting the glass and pouring wine. So now we've taken the audience out of that close-up, out of that moment, and brought it back to the third-person perspective on Tony Shalhoub going, there's something wrong with this guy. It was cued by the waiter. He continues to change the scene as the whole thing continues. Okay, so here we go. No point. Have you forgotten the little boy in you, Henry? Gifts are the point. I can't remember the so, last time I got a gift on the way Tony is acting, the way he pours, the, the other characters notice it, and the other characters start to feel oh, uncomfortable. I'm sorry, I've been such a drip. Was it because Gabe said crapulence? Yes, it was upsetting. No. I'm... Abe? 
It's just the whole goddamn world, you know. Only that? I'm getting maudlin. What about the world, Ed? Okay. This is something that I realized as I, as I watched this scene. What makes it so effective for me isn't the dialogue, really isn't just uh, Abe's performance, Tony's performance. It's the way the other characters listen. And I think what we're seeing here, because these actors all play supporting parts, they all play bit parts. And their main job when they do these bit parts is supporting the lead, supporting the lead. And the best way to support the lead is by listening and by intently listening and adding details to how you listen. Like, the, I, what's his name? The character with the glasses here. And I think this is the first time I've seen him. That's, uh, do, do, do. is that Henry? Is that Patrick? The way he's tapping his hands on the table. What's wrong, Abe? Just that little fucking detail makes it interesting to me. And I can't help but think that what we're seeing here in the scene are masters at listening. Let's continue. I've just turned 64, and at a time when I should be comfortable, settled in body and mind, I'm not at all. I suddenly find myself at a crossroads and everything feels upside down. That's because everything is changing at such an ungodly pace, Abe. Kenneth, Especially Kenneth, our crushing. Our age. We were born in the 1800s, a different century before phone. What's interesting here is that Kenneth's character almost has to lean forward in the table and, put, and insert him into this train of thought. Insert what he needs to say into the spotlight that Abe is taking right now from the table. Listen, of course it's this way. We're men from a different time period of our age. He leans in there and you see Tony Shalhoub's character go from just sort of staring into the oblivion as he speaks, as he, as he sort of uh, pontificates on what he sees off in the darkness. This character pulls him out and he looks up at him. So fucking good. It was before radio. My parents' house had no electricity till I now was he's got seven. The, now he's got it. Kenneth has got it. Yes, and it's physiological. These As guys are supporting him. Homo sapiens crawled along, playing the same role. This character's part. Tens and tens of thousands of years, and now suddenly we're forced to adapt to this rapid fire change, more change in a year than our predecessors. So if I had to look at the the structure here, right? So this is something that we're always looking at as directors is like, who owns the scene? It's the volley between energy. It's the volley between, you know, who's running the scene. And of course, we come in with Shalhoub, right? He comes in and he has the ball, right? He he has all of our attention, right? And so Kenneth leans across the table and goes, give me the fucking ball, right? So he starts to take it. He starts to take this bit. And we're building. You'll see where he goes. And all these other characters are supporting him. So the, the gentleman that was just talking is supporting Kenneth. And he's like, yes, this is what's happening. And the other guy sitting next to Tony is supporting him. Experienced in a lifetime, in a millennium. Think about it. Change to our predecessors were sudden exogenous events. Earthquakes, floods, uh, an eclipse. He's a taking the scene. Tiger lunging at you out of nowhere. They were things to be dealt with in the moment. Then things naturally reverted back to the norm. 
But now, change happens over you. Change itself is the flood. Change He's got it. He's got the ball now. Change itself is the norm. My fear, though, is... Okay, so he had the ball. And he also drops that uh, Sabertooth Tiger comment, which the writer does such a really good job of referencing in the back end. So he sets the stage here with that. Now, Abe goes from sitting back to leaning forward. He leans forward into the light that's on the table. He now has the ball. He's now taking um, the attention. Is that the world is as it always was, and I just didn't see it. That a lot of us didn't see it, us men. I had a feeling we'd get gender specific. Yep. I'm serious. The support. He's being supported. So as, um, what's his name here? Actually, it shows up here. It is, that's Chris. So Chris uh, makes himself known, supports Abe's conversation here, not necessarily supports his point, but actually says something to it. And so now we have this profile shot with him and Abe, right? And so now what we're doing is in the same two shot, he's adding gravity to what Tony Shalhoub is saying by how he watches it, how he watches it. And how much attention that he gives to the speech? Watch. Events. It's too easy. Our collective blindness has caused a lot of harm. We control so they much. They got to a close-up. So much. And to what end? That's one man's perception. Exactly. And perception is tricky. We mm -hmm. all interpret through the lens of ourselves, man and woman. So they're all supporting That's what he says. That we must have shared with the hunter-gatherers. Menus, gentlemen. Boom. And then the waiter shows up, right? So they finish the thought. The waiter shows up resets the scene the fish tonight is a dover sole prepared one of two ways traditional meunier or a citrus beurre blanc sauce <laughs> thank you i've had the dover sole before it's terrific and the way that actor i don't even know who that actor is the way that actor comes in his face isn't even lit it's just his voice the way he delivers stuff it's a palate cleanser it's like you know, having a pickle after a fat cheeseburger, or it's like uh, having a radish after you have a really fatty taco, like a very flavorful taco. This guy comes in and just resets the whole scene. The camera comes out, we reset, we hand the menus out to the guys, and then Tony Shalhoub starts a whole new thought process here. You know, I had a moment the other day. I, I live in this big old... And you think it's going to go to him, but it doesn't. It goes to Kenneth. And I'm a Kenneth fan right now. I love this guy. I love this guy. And honestly, this could be the most important performance of his career, in my opinion. In my opinion, this could be it. Let me rewind a little bit. Listen to this. Thank you. I've had the Dover Soul before. It's terrific. You know... I had a moment the other day. I, I, I live in this big old apartment on Amsterdam. Bought it decades ago. Everyone thought I was crazy, all that money. Now I look like a genius. <laughs> and my wife and I, she's, she's passed. We, we spent countless hours. Fuck. Okay, okay. So when he starts talking, when Kenneth starts talking, Tony doesn't look at him. And the guy is like kind of rambling, right? And the way that we are listening to what he has to say you know, I had this moment, and da, 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 da. because our lead character isn't paying attention to him yet, we're like, okay, this guy's just sort of talking, right? You feel that, right? You feel that when you watch the sequence. But when he said his wife has passed, and the way he says his wife has passed is powerful. 
It's made even more powerful by the cutaway to Tony Shalhoub and the way he looks up. He doesn't, he doesn't take a sip of that wine and the look in his eyes where he realizes right now he's going to hear something emotional and tender from a man. There's outfitting and decorating that we took such pride, everything in the right place. Every man is staring at him. And one day, not that long ago, I stood in the living room and looked around, and all I saw was stuff. Oh my God, dude. Brutal. Stuff. Subtle little camera push. Nothing over the top. feeling. As if I'd never seen any of it before. How he uses his glasses. So much of it was tied to the memory of my wife. We were together 40 years, but it didn't matter. How he uses his hands. All I could picture was my children picking through it all. Choosing what to keep, what to sell, what to... Breaks my heart. And as he starts this performance, the character that's sitting next to him, he feels uncomfortable. And they show that in a cutaway. Sounds like we have World War II planes flying over us right now. He shows that in a cutaway, and the, the character sort of shifts in his seat a little bit. He looks down at his hands because he doesn't feel that comfortable sharing the way that this older gentleman feels comfortable sharing with other men like this, emotionally sharing. He's not that comfortable yet, which is interesting because it's foreshadowing his speech that's coming. This fucking texture in this scene is so goddamn good. Okay, so Tony... Shalhoub, Abe's car, Abe, he's focused because suddenly he's hearing wisdom from someone that's a bit older than him. And he sees that this guy knows where, he knows that this guy knows where he is right now. Throwing a trash heap. My life. My wife. God damn. In piles. It was a warm day, but I... Suddenly felt very cold. Look, I believe in free will. We are not robots. We can. And I love him, man. This is Chris coming in and he's trying to reset it. He's like, guys, guys, <laughs> we, we got together for a good time here. You know what I mean? He's like, look, I, I, I love you guys. You're wonderful. Like, you don't need to feel bad. This, this is, this is what we do. This is men. This is, this is what it is. I love how intellectual this conversation is. Continues. Change for the better. We do adapt. And sometimes what others perceive as meddling, Abe, is actually teaching. You were a teacher most of your life. We pass along our knowledge. That's natural. My son, bright boy, warned me again and again that I was smothering. Okay, so this is Patrick. I love the way, by the way, good job on you, Amazon, for putting the actors' names up on the side here in their x-ray mode. Good job on you. So here's what's fascinating. Patrick's character, and this is what I grabbed from the scene, he f- seems like he feels a little awkward as Kenneth sort of shares his very emotional, very tender moment, right? And so now it seems like all these men, which I've done, I've been in groups like this where a buddy of mine is there and he's like, you know, I just got dumped and I'm dealing with this or I can't, like this job isn't right. And your good friends are circled around you, right? You're usually sharing drinks or food and you're all circled around and everybody's there to protect you. And this is what men do. We want to fix things. This is how we are, right? This is what's in our DNA. 
And so if you see that one of your friends is hurt, you're trying to help. Let me tell you the story. Let me tell you about what happened to me. And this may help you in this moment. And then you have the friend that's like, dude, don't beat yourself up. Stop beating yourself up over this stuff. That's brutal. And now you have the guy sitting across the table who is not normally a sharer, but suddenly he sees a, a moment in which he can start to open up a little bit. This is something that you see with men completely because we're not allowed to share. We're not allowed to be emotional. And the history is, has made it so that we're not allowed to be emotional with each other. And I don't know how many times I've been in conversations with the toughest dudes possible, and it's usually a few beers deep, where someone starts to say something emotional when you look across the way and you see this gentleman who has been holding on to something, holding on to something that has been rotting away in him. And you see that look on his face as he looks around with his eyes and he's like, is it safe? Is it okay? Can I... Can, is, can I talk about this? Is this a safe place? I feel this way with this character. I thought I was guiding him. Then he moved out. He stopped calling. He stopped. We See how he stops? At the, so fucking good, man. He stops it there because he's like, I'm sharing too much. I'm sharing too much. I'm getting too ahead of myself. I'm sharing too much. Now we cut to the actor, uh, what's his name? I'm trying to keep track of everybody. Um, Chris, we cut to Chris, who's been the guy trying to keep control of this situation. He's like, Abe, it's not your fault. It's okay. This is what we do. Everything is fine. What we do is fine. He responds to the way that our character, that other character holds back on his emotions. And he sits there and he goes, shit. Because he knows that we've gone too deep. And when you look at his response and you look at the way he looks at the table, the audience knows that we're going deeper. That's so good. Teach, yes, but we foist. I certainly do. I think I emerged from my mother's womb giving advice on how to deal with the umbilical cord. <laughs> That's such a great line. I'm having one of your moments, Arthur. I'm seeing the piles of my life. And they're foreign to me. This is a brutal okay so then we go back to the lead right because this scene's all about tony shalhoub the the writer has actually said this she said look i'm writing a scene to conclude this character's arc that's what i'm doing here and so it's all about him coming to realize this and they've built this table this table of support for this character to find this and for him to say i'm having a moment like you author i'm having one of your moments and they cut to Kenneth and just, this is what I mean about masters of listening. He just nods. He just sits there and he does this. He, he, he does this thing that I've seen done to me before. And the only time I get this look from another man is when it's an older gentleman that understands that I've grown How fucking crazy is it? Okay, keep going. About your family, right? You tried to help. You tried to guide. See? Mistakes were made. Everybody He's trying to bring mistakes. it back. He's trying oh, to save it. Wine. Everything I thought about the role. I got to rewind that. Sorry, guys. I talked over it. Hold on. Ready? For him to me. This is about your family, right? You tried to help. You tried to guide. Mistakes were made. Everybody makes mistakes. I don't like this wine. Everything I thought about the role. I don't like this wine. <laughs> he says, I don't like this wine. He it's he's getting uncomfortable. This is getting too this is getting 
too intense for him. This is getting too emotional for him. And it's a two shot. And as that character says, I don't like this wine, Kenneth is leaning forward into this because he knows he's about to hear a revelation from this man. He's about to learn something. An older gentleman is about to learn something from a younger gentleman. ...of men and women, I think is completely wrong. I have done exactly the wrong thing for both my children. No, Abe, it's not true. That is such an emasculating statement to make. I have done, ex I've done the wrong thing as a father for my kids. I'm, a, I'm the provider. Like I've always, my main purpose on this planet is to make sure that they are raised correctly, to make sure that they are fed, to make sure that they are nourished. And I have fucked it up. And for him to make that statement, and we cut to the support, and he goes, no, 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 no. And he sits back in his seat, and he's like, no, 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 you're, you're absolutely wrong. That adds so much strength to what Tony Shalhoub says. That adds, because it's almost like a mini explosion just happened, and it blows this character back, and he's trying to defend everybody from the aftermath of this statement. You know, my daughter owns the apartment I'm living in. I thought you bought it, didn't you say that? My wife came up with that, our cover story. Now, my daughter bought it. My daughter, my daughter was dumped by her husband out of nowhere. That was her. The statement. fact that he's sharing this. Instead of collapsing from. He's completely dropped everything. He's completely dropped the facade. He's completely dropped whatever walls you put up with strangers, whatever walls you put up with other men. And he's like, I'm a fucking failure. You know what I mean? And he's sitting here revealing, it's like he's opened his chest and he's like, this is the hole that is in me that we've been trying to cover up. The weight, she emerged stronger. A new person, so I thought. But now I think perhaps that was who she was all along. Wow. I never really took her seriously. My son, Noah, I took seriously. I would take him to Columbia with me every week. Okay, so I'm stopping this at, at uh, 42.38. And this shot crushes me. Because this, there's a man, our lead, at one end of the table who has opened his chest. And he's just revealing his beating, worn heart. And we cut to the opposite end of the table. And we see the close-ups of Kenneth, we see the close-ups um, of the other character sitting across the way, and Kenneth, the older gentleman, has his head cocked to the side, and he's forward his brow, and he's listening. He's truly listening, right? And then the character sitting next to him, the guy who's been afraid to really let go, he has, he's listening too, and he's fearful. He's fearful because he's starting to feel a connection to the statement. So he could dream of what he could be. Ugh. I don't remember if I ever did that for Miriam. I don't think it ever occurred to me. And as unfathomable as this career choice of hers is, she's doing it on her own with no help from me or her mother. Where did this come from? By the way, let's take a half second here and take a pause. You want to keep talking about craft? 
the background acting and the background direction, and this is all the AD department, and I, I guarantee you that this show is as good as it is because it has a stellar fucking assistant director department. You could watch, there's a whole story being told in the background acting of this film, or of this scene, rather. And as you watch these folks, it's a fucking skill. I don't know how many times I've had to deal with a background actor that doesn't know how to do shit. And you're looking at them and you're like, why is the guy fucking wrapping a cable like that? No one's ever wrapped a cable like that in my life. I've never seen that before. It's distracting to you. There are stories about David Fincher just running hundreds of takes because the background actors, he's like, I don't believe how that person fucking walks. Like, what are they doing? You know what I mean? It's a, it's a skill. And here's, let's break down the wall here and let's actually talk about technically how this scene is shot. You have all of the main characters sitting at this table, the four actors, they're all mic'd. They're all mic'd up. They have microphones and you're listening to them. The rest of the room is dead silent, right? So everything you're hearing, the sound of the crowd, the sounds of the plates, the sounds of all that room is is all done in post. That's all ADR'd. So all of these actors in the background, they have to pantomime speaking to each other. They have to pretend to be talking to each other because if they were actually talking to each other, they may step over the actor's lines. But more importantly, if you're cutting the scene up the way that you would have to cut the scene up to get this crafted so well, what they're saying in the background could jump all over the place. You don't want to deal with that. That's the other thing that's interesting is you don't want to give these actors extreme actions to do because when you have to cut to that close-up and maybe you had to use uh, shot five for this bit, you cut away and you go back to shot six, the plate's in a different place. The guy's not, his plate's empty instead of full. I never really notice any continuity errors in this. It is fucking masterful. This is for TV, by the way. This is TV on TV schedule. This strength, this fearlessness that that I never had, that my poor son never had. Ugh. What could she have been if I had helped her? And Here's something else that I'm going to say that's a little risky to say, but what I also like about this is we're, we're, we're in a time period right now where everything is loaded with social messaging, right? And so... You know, it seems to be the hot topic to to make sure that you're pointing out the failures of us as a species, the failure of us as men, and to go through the process of saying, like, look, the reason why everything sucks for women is because men sucked and they were treating women like shit. It's 100% true. There's a lot of that going on. But there's a whole new generation of younger men right now that are just consistently getting fucking bombarded with this, right? And so you have a whole generation going like, I wasn't around. I didn't do this shit. Like, what the fuck is happening, right? It, it, it's a... It's something that we're all processing, right? And trying to deal with the sins of our fathers and our grandfathers, correct? And so what I like about this scene is that it's tackling that. And it's tackling that in such a tasteful way and not on a very surface value way. I'm not a very like, I'm a piece of shit. I did this wrong. You're actually digging in deep and understanding, understanding why the characters felt this way. Abe, we're different men from a different time period. This is what it was like. This is what we do. And if everything's changing so quickly on, underneath of us. And like, we can't keep up with this. And this is how we were raised. And this is how we were taught to do these things. And Shalhoub here in this moment is saying, I was wrong. And the way that I did this, the way that I was, I just followed the rules, the way I did this stuff, was wrong, and it wasn't just wrong for my daughter. It, 
was also wrong for my son. It's textured. You, you start to understand that there's more than good guys and bad guys. There's more than a right and a wrong decision. There's all this great material in between. And every decision that we make, every relationship that, that is set up in our life is based upon that gray matter. It's based upon all these micro decisions that happen in between a larger question. Maybe I'm reading too much. Not ignored her, ignored who she really is. My daughter is a remarkable person. And I don't think I've ever said that to her. Fucking brutal. Every, that statement, whew, that statement is like such a hit for that character. That is, that is the end of this character's arc. That is, that is him finally realizing how, how amazing the, the struggle that our main character for the show, um, Mitch has had for the entire show. He realizes it here. And it's such a strong statement, punctuated punctuated by the wide shot and the way that all the men look at him. And I just paused it, right? See if you guys could pause it at the same point. It's 4337. Now, they cut to this shot to punctuate that statement, and it does it perfectly. But what is also wonderful is that look at the faces of each of these characters. They're having their own arcs in this scene. And so you're looking over at Kenneth, who has this look of admiration. He's like closing his mouth. He's almost nodding. And he's like, he's learned. He's, he's a better man for this. He's a better man for this, right? And you have the, um, the character next to him. Let me see if the names are up here because I can see and the names aren't here. Okay, X-Ray. Okay, you're, you're fucking me over, Amazon. <laughs> so you have the character that's sitting next to him who's been trying to save this night, trying to save this moment. And he's like, this is where it has to be. And he sort of looks down at the table and he goes, okay, all right, we had to get here. How many times have you been with your friends and you wanted to just go out and have a good time? You wanted to put these people together and then it gets really deep, right? And it, 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 sometimes it feels frustrating because you're like, guys, what the fuck? We were coming out to have beers. Now we're going to talk about this shit. But eventually that conversation gets to a point where what needs to be said is said. And you have the same response that this actor does, or at least I have, has that response where you go, we had to be here. Okay. All right. We're here. Now, what I love is across the table, the character who has been afraid to say anything, who has been worried about saying anything, he's got this look of fear on his face because now he's seen another man sitting across from him admit open his heart, open his chest, admit to his wrongdoing. And he's sitting there taking it in. We should probably order. Yep. Excuse me. I think we're ready. He's the one that ends it. We should probably order. I think we're ready. It's awkward for him. How is your chicken prepared? It is lightly seasoned, sage rubbed, and stuffed with the finest foie gras from the Dordogne Valley. He had to ask. It's been what, two years? Then what happens? They call in the, uh, the uh, waiter, and the waiter resets everything. All right. There it is. I think that is one of the best scenes in television. I think that is one of the best crafted scenes in television. 
I think that is one of the best character building scenes that I've seen in a film or on screen in ages. Um, it's masterful. And it's, they're doing a lot of press around this scene. Because, and I didn't realize they were. It wasn't until I started to look up to stuff to get the supporting stuff so I can read you quotes that I realized that they know that this is a this is an Emmy. This is an Emmy, right? Tony Shalhoub's going to get it. And here's the fucking sin. He'll get it. But I think it goes, it should go to each and every one of those guys around that table because they all made that scene. And I wanted to point this out. I wanted to point out the power of the supporting actor because... Like I was trying to say earlier, so many of you want to be the lead. And what happens is the leads burn pretty bright, right? And more than not, leads only become really successful if they're creating some sort of personality that is just repurchased every time. The Rock is the Rock. Schwarzenegger is Schwarzenegger, right? Bruce Willis was always Bruce Willis. Just subtle differences. The only time Bruce Willis wasn't Bruce Willis was when he was a supporting actor, right? What was the uh, camp movie that he did for, uh, what's his name, who did Royal Tenenbaums? What was the camp movie? Camp Moonshine or Moon Camp or something? Bruce Willis wasn't Bruce Willis in that. He was supporting. There is something really great about having a career as a supporting actor, and it's difficult, and it can be tough. You don't get paid as much money. You work harder. But uh, the ones that are good are the ones that show up and love the fucking work. And I tell you this, man, each and every one of these gentlemen around that table, I will think about when I'm casting a movie. And Kenneth is older. I mean, I would love to work with Kenneth. Like, what do I have coming up? Can I put him in something? I love him. I absolutely love him. It's like one of my favorite performances of the whole year. So definitely love this sequence. And I, I wanted to sort of dig into it deep and I wanted to dissect this thing with you all. And I wanted to sort of uh, break apart why I felt this because I felt this so fucking strongly. I'm telling you, the first time I saw it, I had tears welling in my eyes and I kept stopping and going, it's fucking Kenneth. <laughs> The way he delivers that bit about my wife. God damn it, Kenneth. Stop opening up this can of tuna, brother. <laughs> it's sealed. Stop pulling my chest apart. I, and then, like, I'm the guy at the other end of the table that's like, is it okay that I'm crying here? You know? I fucking love this show. And this is just one scene out of so many scenes in the show that are perfectly crafted. Ensemble pieces. There's writer room sequences that happen on the show with the lead, uh, Rachel, and her whole writing staff. I don't want to give too much away, but if you haven't watched the show, if you're looking for something great on television, if you ever have beers with me and you want to nerd out about scenes and acting, this is the show to watch. I'm telling you. And I'm so happy that it exists. And I'm saddened that it ended, but I'm happy that it ended the way it did. And this is the type of television that I think we should have. And why is it better than the rest? Because you just feel like somehow they convinced the executives, somehow they were able to go, it's worth the money to make it this good. Let us make every scene beautiful. Let us production design this stuff let us make this gorgeous 
Let us spend more time and block out these actors the right way. Let us find the emotional core of this stuff. There are camera choreographed dance sequences in this show that are beautiful. And I get it, man. It's all PR and press. And there are other shows out there that people think are great because they look cool or because there's a lot of sex scenes in them and it's very explicit. Fuck those shows. This show's better. And I'm going to say that. Those other shows are fucking elevated, beautifully shot um, soap opera trash. This is craft. This is craft. Hope you guys enjoyed this breakdown on today's show. And before I go and before we sort of break it apart, I got to give a shout out to the sponsors. It's been a while since I've done an ad read on the show. Um, so let's see. Let's let's cue up some music here. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Everything's live today. Let's do, I don't know, this one. There we go. We'll do some ad reads to this. So first up, supporting the show. If you guys are in the market to buy a computer, if you need a new edit system, maybe you need a new sound system, get yourself a PC. Ooh, he said PC. Yes, I did. PCs are the way of the future. <laughs> um, I love my PC, man. And uh, I've been editing on my 6K monster machine from Puget Systems. I just cut my recent movie, the one that you guys haven't seen yet, Come Home. We've submitted it to film festivals. We're waiting to hear uh, once it gets into film festivals, I'll be able to release some of that online. Can't do it yet, but I cut an entire beautiful shot movie with that shot on a airy mini LF large format, uh, shot with the Atlas Orion series, anamorphic lenses, um, and all edited seamlessly on my Puget system, multiple formats. I had like black magic footage coming in. I had footage from my Fuji film cameras coming in. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And then I did all my color grading in DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic, and it ran seamlessly. And let me tell you, Resolve's power is pretty intense right now. I did a lot of compositing real time with my Puget system. So if you want a brand new computer, if you want something that has the best customer support in the marketplace, I mean, you're talking to real people. If you want someone to build you my computer, Reach out to Puget Systems. Go to PugetSystems.com or go to Puget Systems on Instagram and just write to them and say, yo, what is Mike Specs? Can I build a better machine than him? And then I'll write to him and brag about it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Puget Systems is the place to go. Check them out. They have been a supporter of the show for years. They continue to support my work. I love those guys. Um, we're going to do an episode coming up that is Puget Systems centric because I love them so much and I owe them that. So um, also supporting the show, our friends over at Fujifilm. I love Fujifilm's cameras. We shoot with them all the time, the GFX 100S. Gina's been shooting amazing portraits and photography with these cameras. She was also out in Jamaica shooting video with their video cameras. We've been editing them together. The thing I love, 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 love about Fujifilm stuff is their color profiles. Um, and I love being able to take my older lenses that I adapt to these Fujifilm cameras with Photo Deox adapters, which is another sponsor of the show. Photo Deox adapters enable me to take the beautiful color profile, the high-end brains of a Fujifilm camera and strap my old, unused Nikon and Canon lenses. And I, I even have a PL mount for my Fujifilm so I can put anamorphics on it. 
I love this this combination, man. So for those of you who are asking, like, Mike, what do you have in your toolkit? What are you using right now? My Puget System, 100%. My Fujifilm cameras are my cameras that I'm using daily to shoot. What is being shot right now? Hold on. It must be shooting a scene. Those sound like World War II Spitfires that are flying over. That's pretty cool. Um, but I've been using Fujifilm for over a year now. And if you want to see the results of it, just follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or follow Gina's Instagram and look at all the photo sets, look at all the videos that we've done, um, the stuff that she recently shot for GQ um, with like Donald Glover and Zazie Beats. That was shot on the Fujicam rig. So it's beautiful, stunning stuff. Go check out Fujicam. And I've put links below in the description of this episode. I think I've even put a refurbished link. It's down there. Click on those links. It lets Fujifilm know that you guys are listening. But also, refurbished link will send you, if you're looking to buy a new lens, if you're looking to buy a camera and you can't afford the full rate, oftentimes there's something really great in the refurbished section. It's a great way to get a piece of equipment that you couldn't normally afford. Um, also supporting the show, our friends over at Boca Rentals. If you're in Los Angeles or Las Vegas, because they opened up a spot in Las Vegas as well, and you're looking to rent gear, uh, the gear that you've seen all of the show shot with, I bet you can get the entire lens package shot that they used to shoot Marvelous Miss Maisel with, um, go to Boca Rentals. They have all of that stuff. They're an amazing rental company that really believes in starting relationships with young cinematographers, with young filmmakers. They believe that we're the next generation and they run their um, rental company differently than the rest. And here's something, here's a little tip for those of you who have been sitting through the ad reads. We're still in the writer strike, we're about to go into a SAG strike, and we're about to go into a director's, a DGA strike. So it's gonna be quiet through August in our business. Everything's going to slow down and shut down. Here's something that you should take full advantage of. Now's the time to do your personal projects and a lot of these rental places are going to have their inventory so stocked up right now. They might even be giving out deals. They might even be giving out giveaways. They might be doing cool stuff like that. So now's the time. Reach out and communicate with your local rental house. And if you're here in Los Angeles, reach out to Boca Rentals and make them your place to go for cameras, for lenses, for camera support. I love those guys. Uh, and they continue to support the show. And I'm going to be shooting some stuff in the next month or two. And I will be using my gear uh, that I will rent from Boca Rentals. Okay. Um, and like I said, make sure you click the links in the description of this episode. Each link is trackable. And uh, people, all of our sponsors will know that you guys are listening. And they will continue to support the show. You know what I mean? Um, and finally, for those of you that are newcomers to the show and you're like, man, it's daunting the amount of episodes that you guys have in your queue. It's ridiculous. Where are we at now? We're like 250, 251 or something. Um, the best thing to do is go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There I've curated the episodes by subject material. So if you just want to listen to the chef episodes, they're all up there. If you want to listen to the filmmaker episodes, the director episodes, they're all up there, man. And I even have like a top 25, I think. Let me look at it right now. But Episodes. I have a top 30 episode, which I haven't updated lately. What, what do we got in here? Ah, let's take a look at what our top 30 is. 
Episode 211, Golden Age of Photography, two-parter with David James, photographer David James. That episode, if they were giving out awards, we win an award for that show. That one is phenomenal. Uh, episode 226 with my buddy Joe Carnahan. Uh, big shout out to Joe right now. He's off shooting his new movie. So make sure you go follow Joe on Instagram and look at the crazy life that this motherfucker's leading. Um, I love the guy. I want to work with the guy. Uh, 226 is me and Joe meeting for the first time and really connecting. It's a great episode. Those of you who are like, who's Joe Carnahan? Uh, remember a movie called Narc or Smoking Aces? Remember those? Also uh, on our top 30 is episode 129, drawing a Keanu Reeves comic book. That is the artist Ron Garney, who drew Keanu Reeves' um, Berserker book, which is going to be developed into a Netflix series. That will be the next stage for Keanu Reeves. You know, we know him as John Wick. You're going to know him as Berserker. And uh, I sit down with Ron and we talk about all that. Uh, episode 157, directing using action to tell a story in the movie Kate with um, Cedric Troyan, the director. It's a great episode. Um, let me skip ahead. Uh, bup, 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 bup. Oh, yes. Episode 190 with Peter Stormare. It's an epic episode. Peter and I have a love relationship on that show. And uh, also another good one. It's a little bit deeper for you guys. Go to episode 88, Editing Mandy, with the guest on the show is the editor of Mandy, Brett Bachman. I like Brett a lot. He has cut some of the best independent films out there right now, some of the most memorable films. Here comes those World War II planes. Wild. Living in Los Angeles. So crazy. Um, and uh, he talks about cutting Mandy one of the films that everybody loves. And he talks, we talk specifically about that sequence where Nicolas Cage is drinking in the bathroom in his underpants. We get into that. Um, also, episode 95 with Greg Frazier. I had Greg on right around the time that he had shot uh, the first Dune. We talked about the Batman that he shot. Um, I'm trying to get him on uh, to talk about that new movie that he just shot. So I'm going to try to get him and Oren Solferon, who's another cinematographer. They apparently shared cinematography, uh, the, the cinematography position on that movie. And I'm excited to get them on to talk about that. I'm trying to make it happen. Um, so like I said, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. Check out our top episodes. Great way in. Uh, there is so much, there's so much great content uh, on our show there. Um, and it's a great place to support us. It, while you're listening to the show, I try to put up supplemental material for each episode, so that will be up there as well. Okay? All right. So we're getting to the end of the episode today, and I just I just wanted to warmly take a second here and just say how much I love, how much I love cinema, how much I love the business. Wow, what? You guys hearing that? I don't know if the noise canceling will cut that out. It sounds like the plane circling around Kong on the tower out there. Pretty cool, man. Um, I just, I love it when it's done well. And I, you'll hear me get cranky on the show a lot, right? Because I just want stuff to, to, to affect me the way that the scene in today's episode affected me. And it's out there. I just got to look for it. And it, it comes from surprising places. Who would have fucking thought that one of the best scenes that I've ever seen 
would be on, uh, you know, a streaming service by the same company that is throwing packages on my front porch every day because Gina is ordering stuff all the time. Uh, by the way, uh, life update. We are about to have uh, uh, new pets. It's a big deal for me because, as you know, I'm allergic to cats and dogs. I'm allergic to most animals. So we are about to have uh, two critters that I most likely am not allergic to coming into the house. Um, and Gina is going to be, here she is, she's going to be a rat lady. She's excited. When do your when do your little rats show up? I'll have official guests on my show. They'll probably be chewing in the background and making all sorts of noise. <laughs> so she's been running around setting up her cage. She's very excited. So we will have new. You're going to be a rodent woman. You're going to be a rat lady. Well, you put me in this position. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, that's it, man. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. I'm going to leave you with, uh, let's see, what do we got? What do we got? Let me see what's on our list here for music. Let's leave you with a track. Beep, 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 beep. What do I got on here? Mm, I got to load some new stuff. My Roadcaster. Oh, I know what I'll leave you with. I'll leave you with a good track from Betamax, um, the Abyss song that we love so much. By the way, I've been getting a lot of love on our Betamax episode, so make sure you check that out. It was a few weeks ago. Love those guys, and uh, I love the fact that we've made this track bigger than it was before. So thanks for listening to the show, and as always, I will see you next Tuesday. Mm -hmm.